We continue our journey through the Old Testament. We come to Exodus chapter 21. And I would say this along with probably many others who have taught through the book of Exodus. Of all of the chapters in the book of Exodus, chapters 21 through 23 are probably the least exciting to teach through. Uh, They are, in fact, civil laws or social regulations. And uh, I mean, this portion of scripture talks about what to do if your oxen gets free and gores someone to death. (laughs) Now, I know that has immediate application in your life. And so you're like, hallelujah. I love this portion. And uh, it talks about like if you strike one of your uh, neighbors and uh, they get put down on the ground and they end up lying in a bed for time and, well, if they get up and they're able to sustain themselves with a cane, well, then you're acquitted. And that just probably is an impact in very many of our lives in so many ways. But I feel like because the Scripture tells us in Psalm 40, verse 7, the Scripture says in declaration, Messiah, he says, I will come. Behold, the volume of the book is written of me. And so the volume of the book is written of him. And so we have the adventure, we have the really admonishment from God's word to search the scriptures diligently to find Christ in the midst of the text. Can I get an amen? The Bible says it this way in Proverbs. It's to the glory of God to conceal a matter It's to the glory of kings to search it out. We've been called both kings and priests under our God. So as kings, it's to our own benefit to search them out and to find Christ in the midst of it. Having that information, having the knowledge and seeing Christ in the midst It's an opportunity for us to see the application for Christ is our example of how we're to live and how we're to walk in our holy conduct. Can I get an amen? And so when we find Christ in the midst, we can say, how does that apply to my life? What transformation, God, do you want to do in me in bringing your word and the washing of the water of the word of God in my life the Holy Spirit quickening in me and bringing about transformation. If you're a candidate this morning for the transformation by the power of God the Spirit and by the power of the Word of God, you'd say, I'm available for that transformative work in my life. Will you raise your hand this morning with me? Come on, we all we want God's Word to be implanted in us to bring forth fruit and transformation. How many of you, how many of you are are already or maybe already this morning fed up with you? You're just kind of fed up with yourself. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, man, maybe it's just the the accumulation from last Sunday to this morning. You're like, ugh, enough of me. Let's get more of Jesus. John the Baptist absolutely had understanding. He said, I must decrease he must 
increase. Amen? Amen. I'm a candidate that he would increase in my life. And this old boy, this old man would decrease. More of Jesus, less of me. More of Jesus, less of you. Amen? That was puny. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good. Well, Matt encouraged us in that he said, well, it is the NBA Finals, but we're in service this morning. And it's if we can get excited about a sporting, whatever the sporting activity is for you, maybe it's, maybe it's playing a game of Scrabble and you just get so excited when you get a seven-letter word and you get the 50-point bonus, whatever it is. Maybe you win in a game of Trivial Pursuit, <clears throat> Kim. Anyway, whatever it is, whatever really charges you, listen, we're talking about the God of the universe. The God of the universe. The very chair you're sitting in. His idea was to put the molecules together so that they would sustain you. Come on. His idea was the colors of the evergreen trees, the Douglas fir forests that we enjoy when we drive almost anywhere in Oregon. Well, at least in the Willamette Valley. The deciduous trees and all those marvelous leaves and the colors they turn in the fall. That was his idea. The colors of the waters in the oceans. Those of you who have gone to places like in the Caribbean and you see those coral blue waters. That was his idea. Come on. And we're here to study his word together. So I'm going to encourage you to kind of lean forward in your seat, lean forward, kind of get your book out, open it up to Exodus chapter 21, maybe have a pencil ready, and be engaged, because I believe that God wants to do something in us today. Praise the Lord. Well, I think it's the Hebrew scholars that really understood hermeneutics and the understanding of what the scriptures say, more so or at least better or differently than the Western minds, even in their approach to the text or the scriptures. For instance, the Western mind, that would be like the quote-unquote educated minds, that's you and I, we're Western thinkers. Look at your neighbor and say, hey, you're a Western thinker. They're Western thinkers. Stinkers. (laughs) Stinkers. <laughs> Western thinkers. And I don't mean like Western like, you know, I got my six shooters on and I'm ready to, you know, push open the saloon doors and say, come on, there's a new, there's a new sheriff in town. No, I'm not talking Western that way. I'm just saying Western thinkers. Here's what, here's what I mean by that too. As a Western thinker, our tendency when it comes to prophecy, we think prediction, fulfillment. Prediction, fulfillment. In fact, many of us are very desirous in these last days to be aware of what is going on presently in the Middle East. What's happening? We're looking for the fulfillment of those things that were foretold to us through the text and through the scriptures. That Western mind, I'm thinking this way. Well, The Hebrew 
rabbinical scholars, they look at prophecy different than we do. They look at prophecy more as pattern. They're looking for the pattern to be repeated. In fact, in just a very short time, in a few short weeks, we'll be engaging in Exodus chapter 24 through the end of the book. And there's about 16 plus chapters all centered around this subject matter of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, we're told throughout Scripture, is a pattern. It's a pattern. In fact, Moses, when he came down from Mount Sinai, he had the two tablets that we just went through a four-part series on the law of God, the Ten Commandments. We know he had the two stones. But do you know he also had with him a set of detailed blueprints that were administrated to him by angels on the construction, detailed construction of the tabernacle. That's fascinating. I had this image in my mind of him walking with these kind of cardboard tubes with scrolls inside, and he's trying to navigate those in the two stones he came down, and we're going to be looking at that, and they think pattern, pattern. They have four levels of understanding, if you will, when they look at the Scripture. Our interns are acutely aware with this and aware of this. You can ask them the Hebrew names. But the first is the Peshaw. Everyone say Peshaw. Now look at your neighbor and say Peshaw. <laughs> Peshaw. It is the literal Translation, literal translation. Moses went up the mountain. It means Moses went up the mountain, literal. The remez, or the second understanding, is this idea that because of what the text says and how it says, there's a hint of something more here. So I, when, when I'm looking at the scripture, I look for taglines. Like if there's a comma and then a phrase. I think, now why did the Holy Spirit see fit to put that there? Why is that there for us? Like for instance, we know that these regulations for social engagement and social justices and social judgments, if you will, that was for the practicality of people living together. Can I get an amen? We need some rules to live by. And God has some very practical rules to live by. Now then, the Holy Spirit has also saw fit that these words are here for you and I today. What might that purpose be? What might that look like? When we hear of the text that we're going to look at acutely this morning, and we see that a man will have his ear pierced with an awl on the doorpost of his master's house and become what is known as a bondservant, why did the Holy Spirit make certain that it would be here for us? Why is Jesus referred to as a bondservant by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Philippians chapter 2? 
Why is it that we know that Jesus is our example? In other words, you and I are to be bond servants. What does that look like? And so we'll look at that today. That's important. So the remez, there's a hint of something more. And it's to the student's opportunity to discover what that remez is, that hint of something more. I want that nugget from God's word. Because oftentimes when we discover the nuggets in God's word, it becomes that which is transforming in my own life. Transforming. And again, we raised our hands and said, I'm a candidate for the transformation work of God the Spirit and the word of God in my life. Amen. So with that remez. Then there's the Duresh. Everyone say Duresh. Duresh. When you wake up in the morning, you want to Duresh yourself. Before. Duresh. Duresh, we would understand that is homiletics. Homiletics. Homiletics is the terminology that is used in theological circles for how does that apply in my life? What does this mean to me? And so we can look at a circumstance or we can read a Bible story, a historical account, and we see how David may have reacted. Well, the Philistines gathered themselves in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up? And God said, go up, and I will surely deliver them into your hands. So David went up, and God surely delivered them into his hands. And we might take a homily from that. When I'm facing a battle in my life, the first thing I should do is go to the Lord. Can I get an amen? amen? All too often, some of us are like, I got this. Let's go. And we get out there and we realize God wasn't saying go up, right? The second time they came into the valley, David said, shall we go up? And God said, no, don't go up. He said, rather go around behind. And when you hear the marching on the tops of the mulberry trees, then go forth and I will deliver them into your hands. So God doesn't always operate in the same way he has always operated, does he? He'd do different things. And you and I, we need to be going to the Lord first. That's the homily. That's a lesson. That's a principle that you and I can learn. Does that make sense? Have we already been to church this morning? If you wrote that down, that can be a practical application in your life this very day. How many of you are going through a battle right now? Raise your hand. There you, look around. There's all kinds of battles going on. Have you inquired of the Lord? Wait. They that wait upon the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. How many of you that are in the midst of the battle could use a little strength renewal this morning? Yes. Wait for the Lord's answer. That's not the sermon. This is the pre-sermon. So we have the Peshaw, the Ramez, and the Duresh. And the last understanding that they have is called the Sod. It's Hebrew, I believe it's pronounced Soda. But the Sod, and it's a deeper understanding. In other words, there is more here than meets the eye. This is not like the Transformers. However, this word is the Transformer. And there is more that meets the eye. And it is worth digging. The, 
I think it was the sixth century rabbi who said, when Messiah comes, he will explain the spaces between the characters. The spaces between the character. The word of God is, it's God-breathed, and it is, it will endure forever. And so, there's much there. Anyway, okay, so that's, that's the Hebrew understanding of the scripture. And so when we come and we see that scripture in Psalm chapter 40 and verse 7, that the volume of the book is written of me, we get to say, okay, God, where are you in chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23? Jesus, where are you in the midst of this? So this morning, I'll just give you a quick outline of chapter 21. If you have a study Bible, you likely have some of these headings, but verses 1 through 11 are laws concerning servants. Everyone say servants. Servants. Verses 12 through 27 are laws about violence. Violence. And then verses 28 through 36 are laws or judgments, if you will, concerning animal control, animal control. And uh, we're going to read this morning. I'm going to read. You can follow along. Verses 1 through 11. And what we're going to do, because culturally these things may not be applicable to us from the actual text itself, but the subject matter of servanthood definitively applies to you and I today. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. Let's begin in verse 1, chapter 21. It says, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. Oftentimes we wonder, well, was this like slavery? In many ways, there are ways that people would become servants if they had a debt they couldn't pay. They would become a servant. Does that make sense? Uh, anybody in this room have a debt you cannot pay? I don't mean financially. We have a sin debt. Someone has taken care of that for us, so we get the opportunity to serve the one who's paid our debt. Okay, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. The Bible says, and then he continues, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. Here's a guy who's been serving, and while he was serving to pay off his debt, he marries a woman in the master's house, and they have children together. And after six years, in that seventh year, he's released, and he's a free man. But the wife and the kids are actually the property of the master. But the man says, I love my master, because in my master's house, 
I was taken good care of. I had a covering over my head. I had a place to sleep. I had protection in my master's house. It was good I had three square meals. Can someone say amen? It's like living under your mother's roof. And you come home in the afternoon and you smell the pot roast cooking in the crock pot. I mean, I was up early this morning and my wife was up early this morning and she was browning some meat in a frying pan at 6.30 in the morning. Now, I don't normally get hungry in the morning. But boy, I'll tell you, when that aroma wafted its way into the family room where I was sitting reading the Word of God, I said, yes, I'll have a bite. And she says, you can't have a bite. I'm just browning it. It's going in the crock pot, and it's cooking. And I'm thinking, hallelujah, I'm going home, and I'm going to have beef. It's what's for dinner. <laughs> Three square meals. Hallelujah. Yeah, it was good. And he says, I love my master, and I love my wife. And I love my kids. I will volunteer to stay here. I'll use volition. This God-given differential he has given me that sets humanity above all other creation. God has given you and I the ability to choose. And the servant says, I am a free man, but I'll choose to be a bond servant. And so his master shall bring him to the judges at the gates of the city. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Imagine volition. I choose willfully to subject myself to the authority of the master. Come under and be a part of his household. Anybody think there might be an application for you and I somewhere in the midst of that? Yeah, we'll look at that in just a minute. Goes on to say, and if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed uh, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since uh, he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her accordingly to the custom of the daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not uh, do these uh, three... If he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Again, there's some social things that we, we're not going to take time to go into the detail for understanding of what these things and the ramifications of the Israelites during these days were. How many of us believe God is good? Can I get an amen? All of these, understanding in their context and understanding in their culture, absolutely made perfectly good sense, and were very, very good, okay? But what I want to look at this morning 
is really the first portrait of Messiah. So for the next three weeks, well, next Sunday we have a special guest, missionary Phil Malcolm and his wife Robin. They're coming in, missionaries to Africa. He's going to have the whole service. I want to encourage you to come. Phil Malcolm, we've had him at Hillside before years ago. He is a phenomenal minister of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you will not want to miss what God is doing. Um, but the weeks following that, there'll be two more weeks, and we'll be in chapters 22 and 23, and we're looking at portraits of the Messiah, portraits of Messiah. So our first portrait of Messiah is Christ, the ultimate servant of all, the servant of all. And so, by way of application for you and I, and by way of looking at this whole idea of bond servant, we're using that bond servant theme and we're correlating it to Christ, who Paul calls a bond servant when he's writing his letter to the church in Philippi. He says these words in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in who? You. Well, yes, me, but you. Let this mind, let this mind, which was also in the mind of Christ, let this mind be in you. In other words, let us have the mind of Christ. Does that make sense? The scripture declares we have the mind of Christ. Let this be working in us, the mind of Christ, who being in the form of God or who being God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Taking the form of a bond servant. Now, it's interesting to me, when you study the New Testament, we are given four accounts of the life of Christ from four different vantage points. We have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them are written under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, and they are depicting our Savior from literally four different vantage points. Matthew is writing to the Jews, and he is specifically referencing him, if you will, as Messiah, Christ, Messiah. And so even his genealogy begins with Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Luke, Dr. Luke, is revealing, if you will, Christ, the Son of Man. The genealogy that we see in Luke traces Jesus all the way back to the first 
man, Adam. John, he is revealing Christ, the Son of God. His genealogy, by the way, how many of you knew there was a genealogy in the Gospel of John? It's a really short one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a genealogy. Listen, Christ has no beginning. Can I get an amen? He is God. He's God. Of his beginnings, there are none. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Thanks be to God. The Son of God, his genealogy is from eternity to eternity. Hallelujah. Then you come to Mark. And Mark is revealing Christ, the servant. Incidentally, there is no genealogy in the Gospel of Mark because no one is concerned about the genealogy of a servant. No one cares about the pedigree, if you will, of a servant. He is just that, a servant. And so we have these four faces, if you will. It's interesting that if you read the book of Revelation, how many of you like the book of Revelation? This is kind of like your thing. I like Revelation. You see, in Revelation chapter 4, John, the apostle, is called up. He says he saw a window in heaven open and the voice like a trumpet that he heard at first say, come up here. And it says immediately he was in the spirit and he was caught up and he was in the throne room and there he sees four living beings. And the four living beings, one having the face of a lion, one having the face like an eagle, one having the face like a man, and one having a face like an ox. They seem to reflect the four gospel depictions. They're reflecting the one who is in the midst of the four living creatures, Jesus, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the king, the eagle, who is the son of man with the face of the man, and who is the ox, the servant of all. He's revealed himself. And you'd see this in other places throughout Scripture. So, it is also interesting to me, and this is a little side note, and worthy of side note, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writing to the church in Corinth in the 15th chapter recorded for us in the 45th verse, he refers to Jesus as the last Adam. The first Adam came in the flesh in the Garden of Eden. The last Adam also came in the flesh. Interesting side note, Adam in the Garden of Eden was given the assignment to do what? To tend the garden. To have dominion over it and to take care of it. What does that make him? A servant. Makes him a servant. He didn't choose to do that. What did the serpent say? to Eve in his deception. He said, that's not what God said. 
God knows in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like him. You will be like God. What did Adam choose to do? Eat the fruit. What does that reveal? He wanted to be like God. Eve certainly did. She saw that it was good, desirable, and so she ate the fruit, gave it to her husband who was with her. And he ate. How interesting that the last Adam, who is God, forfeited all of that to become a servant. It demonstrates the contrast between a life after the flesh and a life after the spirit. The life after the flesh tries to climb an artificial ladder to be at the top. So everybody serves me. But it's a misnomer. You see, life after the spirit is taking off one's robes that represent their authority and stepping down and stooping down like we sang the song. And he bowed at our feet and washed our feet. He became the servant of all, the king of glory. And he's modeling it for you and I, how to live, how to be servants to one another, to set aside our own desires and our own passions and our own wants and to live, not neglecting our own needs, but putting the needs of others over our own. It's powerful. Jesus surrendered all. That portion of Scripture in Philippians, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being God, he's God, says, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He let it all go. Let it go. He surrendered all. Servants surrender. All right, everybody, we're going to practice surrendering. Stick them up. I surrender. I surrender. That's what we get to do. Like the second Adam. Matthew was telling me, he says, man, Dad, you ruined that one hymn for me. He says, because you've sung it so many times wrong in a sermon. I surrender most. I surrender most, most to Jesus. I surrender, I surrender most. Yeah. I surrender all, just like he surrendered all. He's God, but he set every attribute of God aside and came in human flesh. He took on flesh and became a bondservant. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? 
I would submit to you that he would do that because he loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved. Jesus became the slave of all. Turn in your Bibles with me real quickly to Mark chapter 10. This is so resplendent of how you and I so often think. I love, I love when the disciples reflect us because it hurts because generally Jesus gives a principle associated with the behavior that's corrective. And he gives it in, a, in such a way that it's like, Oh, wow. I, my thinking is always so, I'm so like Adam. I just want to climb the ladder, so to speak, as opposed to coming down from on high. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> I mean, do you see yourself even in that? Sometimes we think that Jesus is a genie in the bottle. Oh, Jesus, please give me whatever I ask. Right? Am I the only one that's ever been there? Oh, well, there's about six of us. Okay. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? How gracious is that? Jesus said, okay. I mean, he's fully man here, right? He's not taking advantage of his God ability. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? He said to them, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said, oh, we are able we are able. If ever someone felt cocky, this was probably a moment of just being, yeah, we can do this. It's like Peter in the garden, like, hey, these guys may all reject you, but I'm with you. He says, mm, well, before the rooster crows, you'll at least deny me three times tonight. And it's like, oh, man. Okay, so, hey, we can do this. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly disappointed with James and John. Can you imagine? Like Thomas is like, are you kidding me? You, you, you asked, you, let's go outside. <laughs> I mean, they're just like, seriously? So Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Well, I'm pomp and circumstance here, and I'm in charge. That means go get me something to drink. Now. <laughs> And they're like, Lord it over. And they say, well, you need to carry this load, but I don't have to because <laughs> I'm in charge. And they would lord things and they would tell people what they need to do and they weren't even willing to do it themselves. And so Jesus is saying, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them and the great ones exercise this authority over them. Yet 
it shall not be so among you. Whoa. Now it's coming home. Here comes some principle living about servanthood. Not so amongst you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Anybody here want to advance in the kingdom of God? Raise your hand if you want to advance in the kingdom. I do. But the advancement in the kingdom of God is diametrically opposed to the advancement in the kingdom of this world. It's literally the exact opposite. One's climbing the ladder, another is descending the ladder. Does that make sense? And then he said, whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Seek first the kingdom of God. Amen? It's diametrically opposed to the systems of this world. It's different, and Jesus models it. He's the second Adam from above, or the last Adam. He surrendered everything. He's a slave of all because he loves the master. He loves his father. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, to do the will. I'm his servant. Thy will be done, not my will, Jesus said. Again, in John chapter 6, he said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came in the likeness of a man. Why? To do the will of the one who sent him. Redemption could only be purchased by a kinsman. So the God of the universe, we see it in the life of Abraham and Isaac. When they're going up the mountain, up Mount Moriah, Isaac, the son, says, Father, we have the wood and we have the fire. Where is the sacrifice? Abraham says by faith, God will supply himself the sacrifice. He will, he will provide himself as the sacrifice. God became man because in order for redemption to occur, it had to be a kinsman, the kinsman redeemer. That's what the whole purpose of the book of Ruth is. It reveals to us the kinsman redeemer and how redemption can only occur by one who is in the family lineage. God, in order to provide himself as sacrifice, had to become man and be fully man. If he exercised any of his rights to his godhood, redemption would be impossible. He showed us the way. Everything he did was under the power of the Spirit of God. Can I suggest to you, if we want to do something great for the kingdom of God, we must do it in the power of the Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, declares the Lord. How did Jesus heal people? A lot of people say, well, because he's God. No. He healed people under the power of the Spirit of God. As man, the Spirit of God working through him. Man, that gives me great comfort. 
Because Jesus said, greater things shall you do because I go to the Father. It's expedient for you that I go to the Father. For if I don't go to the Father, I cannot send the helper. But when I go to the Father, I will send the helper and you will do greater things in my name. The Spirit of God working through a man or woman who is sold out and fully a bondservant will do powerful things for the kingdom of God and the glory, come on, will go to Jesus. Will go to Jesus. How many of us want to see the power of the Spirit of God working in and through us? We hear of someone who has cancer and we want to believe God will heal them and God does heal. Can I get an amen? He does. He takes ordinary people who are bond servants of Jesus and he operates and moves through them. Oh, wouldn't it be epic if every one of us in this room walked in that power and oneness with God? This is our opportunity. We're going to be coming to the communion table in a few moments and if we look internally, the problem isn't with God, is it? Is it? No. The problem is with us. It's us. Because we're often, all too often, more about us than we are about God and more about us than we are his kingdom. We're more about our kingdom than his kingdom. So often we're thinking about our reputation and not his. The scripture said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he made no reputation for himself. All too often that's what we're focusing on. How much time did you and I spend to get ready this morning? Even when I ask that question, you're thinking about, ladies, you might be thinking about, you know, putting mascara on. I saw some of you driving doing that. But no, I'm teasing. But we think about getting ready externally. But no, I'm talking about getting ready internally. And it shouldn't have started this morning. It started last Sunday when we walked out the doors. We're all too concerned about what others think about us rather than thinking about the one and what he knows about us. Oh, God, help us to be concerned more about character than reputation. Transform me from the inside out, oh, heavenly Father, that I might walk in oneness with you and Jesus and the Spirit of God and begin to see the power of God, the Spirit being made manifest in my daily living. Can I get an amen? I mean, everyone sitting in here, you're here today because that's what we want. We want that. Are we willing to surrender all? Are we willing to become the slave of all? And finally, the bond servant. Jesus said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He was obedient. The scripture tells us he was obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Obedient to become flesh. Obedient to walk 
by the Spirit and not sin and obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross, that he might continue as the servant of all. To this very day, Jesus is serving you and me. He's serving us. He's ever making intercession for the saints. He's a bond servant. Praise be to God. If his master has given a wife, Exodus 21 verse 4 reminds us of the bond servant. If his master has given a wife, what did Jesus say about those whom the Father had given him? None have I lost. What does it tell us? The son's master, Jesus' master, the father, the father has given a bride to the son. I'm so thankful that that description, it says, I love my master. Jesus says to the father, I love the father and the father loves me. Isn't that great? I and the father are one. He is in me and I am in him. He says, I love the father and the father loves me. But Jesus is also saying, I love my wife. That's you and me, the bride of Christ. And we have been given to Jesus by the Father. Come on. He says, I will not go out free. He became the bondservant. Do you know that Psalm 40, verse 6, tells us? In fact, just flip over in your Bibles. Flip, flip over to Psalm. Oh, it's already past 1130. Sorry about that. Flip, I said it was going to be a short sermon to the guys in the back. Well, it is short. It's just shorter than the last time I did this. A little bit. Psalm 40. Look at verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. The word opened there literally translated my ear you have dug out. It's a, many commentators believe this is the depiction of Jesus becoming, as Messiah, the bondservant. With the awl in the doorpost, his ear was dug out. He was pierced. It was open. And he became the bondservant because of his love and his obedience. And so, voluntary service. She's thankful that Jesus volunteered, said, I'll go. I love you, and I love the bride which you have given me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and we're going to share in communion this morning. And we'll close with this thought. The apostles... And really, the disciples of the early apostles, they called themselves bondservants. We see it recorded for us in the New Testament. We see it first with the apostle Paul in some 13 of his letters. He's indicating many, many times, I, Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in the life of James. James, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in Peter. Peter said, Peter, 
a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in Jude. Jude, a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in Paul's, even his own disciples, Epaphras, one of his. He says, Epaphras, who is a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit were writing an epistle today with your name, would he say, David, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Taylor, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Levi, a bondservant of, Je- of Jesus Christ. Floyd, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Would he use those words to describe, thank you, brother, Would he use those words to describe you? This is when we come to the communion table today. If you say, well, like that hymn that Pastor Dave ruined for Matthew, that's kind of how I sing it, I surrender most. Maybe you'd say, I surrender some. Maybe you'd be saying, I surrender a little. But you find yourself not saying, I surrender all. And you want to. And you want to be a bondservant of Jesus. You want to follow his examples, or his example, like the disciples, his disciples, the apostles followed his example, and it's recorded for us, and even their disciples. So first generation, second generation, recorded for us, bondservants, and now we're however many generations down line. In the epistle, Paul tells us, We are living epistles. Our lives are living epistles. You'd say, I would that the Holy Spirit would use that description to describe me. So what about you? Have you stated your love today for your master? I love my master. I love his wife, the church. I love the sons and the daughters. Have you declared that? Have you declared it beyond just your words, but demonstrated it by how you live? Are you living? Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And my commands are not burdensome. My commandments are not burdensome. If you find the commandments of Christ burdensome, which he really gave us too, love God, love people, you say, well, that's kind of hard. I like these people, but I don't love them. It doesn't work. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. There's no dual citizenship. Can I get an amen on that? There's no dual citizenship. No half in, half out. It's all the way, baby. All the way. Let's dive in. Let's get into the deep end. Golden West, Golden West Junior College, where I grew up, had a swimming pool. And as kids in the summertime, we'd walk up about a block and a half to Golden West Junior College. And we'd pay, I think it was a quarter, and you could swim all day. you get a little stamp on your hand. And we'd play Marco Polo down in the shallow end, but we realized you can't swim underneath the person who's it in the shallow end. And it was everything we could do to get ourselves down into the deep end. When we got in the deep end, man, we were swimming. And Marco Polo became a game fully alive. How many of you know what I'm talking about? 
I mean, you're in the water for so long, your skin's turned red like a lobster because you've been out in the sun, reflected by the pool. You're, you're waterlogged. You look at your fingers and all your fingerprints now have ripples because you are just completely dehydrated from being in that pool water. But you've been having the time of your life. There was no burden at all. Let's stop carrying water in buckets and feeling the burden and the weight. Let's start swimming in God's kingdom. Can I get an amen? Today at the communion table, will you consider surrendering all to your master? Will you consider loving him with all because of what he's done for you? Voluntarily saying, I surrender all. I want to serve you forever. I want to give you everything. Will you walk in that obedience? Christ modeled it for us. His apostles modeled it for us. Their disciples modeled it for us. Can we model it for the church? I'm going to invite